a defendant was on trial for murder in Oklahoma. There was strong evidence indicating guilt, but there was no corpse. There was no, no body. In the defense's closing statement, the lawyer, knowing that his client would probably be convicted, resorted to a trick. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I have a surprise for you all. The lawyer said as he looked at his watch. Within one minute, the person thought to be dead in this case will walk into this courtroom. He looked toward the courtroom door. The jurors, somewhat stunned, all looked on eagerly. A minute passed. Nothing happened. Finally, the lawyer said, actually, I made up the previous statement. But you all looked on with anticipation. I therefore put it to you that there is reasonable doubt in this case as to whether anyone was killed and insist that you return a verdict of not guilty. The jury, clearly confused, retired to deliberate. A few minutes later, the jury returned and pronounced a verdict of guilty. But how, asked the lawyer, you must have had some doubt. I saw all of you stare at the door. Then answered the jury foreman. Oh, we looked at the door. But we also noticed your client did not. It'll take a while. <clears throat> we, are, we are working our way through the Ten Commandments. And now we are over the hump. Last week we looked at the commandment to honor our fathers and our mothers. But here's the question. Why isn't there a commandment about brothers and sisters. Well, there is. And it's the sixth commandment. Where God says to his people, you shall not murder. <laughs> How is that one funnier than the joke I just told? <clears throat> oh, Okay. <laughs> Yes, you shall not murder. 
to introduce this commandment, and I've been trying to use Bible stories to introduce the commandments, I want to take us back to the very first murder recorded in the Bible. So if you have your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 4, should be easy to find, and we are going to look at the story of Cain and Abel. Genesis chapter 4. You can use the table of contents if you need to. (laughs) Genesis 4. Are you there? Okay. Verse 1. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve. And she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have begotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time, that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well. Will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you. But you must master it. Cain told Abel, his brother. And it came about... When they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Let's stop there. Our story of Cain and Abel begins with some background. We learn that Adam and Eve have a baby, a boy named Cain. Even though they had disobeyed God in the garden, in His grace, God allows Adam and Eve to be fruitful. Then a second son is born, and his name is Abel. The two boys grow up and choose different career paths, if you will. Cain becomes a farmer with crops. While Abel becomes a shepherd with flocks. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the produce from the field as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought the best portions of the firstborn of his flock. 
We're told that the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Why did God accept Abel's offering, but not Cain's? There's a lot of speculation about this. There's a lot of good guesses. But in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4, we are told, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. It would seem that Abel knew what God wanted. He trusted God and he gave God his very best. It was true worship. Cain, on the other hand, also knew what God wanted. But he did not trust God. And as a result, he held back from God and did not give God his best. God accepted Abel's worship, but did not accept the worship of Cain. As we continue our story, Cain becomes very angry. He's hot. And God tells Cain that he has a choice to make. He can do what is right. Or he can continue to disobey. Well, Cain makes his decision. And he takes Abel out into the field and murders him. Cain was angry with God. And yet, he directed his anger toward his own brother. This is so true of us as well, isn't it? We get angry with God. We don't like how life has turned out for us. Something did not go our way and we take it out. We take our anger out. On those who are closest to us. We take our anger out on those we love. That's what Cain did. He murdered his own brother. And as a stark reminder, this occurred after they had brought their offerings to God. The first human crime, the first human crime, murder, occurred after worship. That's the first murder recorded in the Bible. And unfortunately, it would not be the last. And it brings us back to Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Exodus 20, verse 13, where God says to His people, You shall not 
murder. This is the shortest verse in the Old Testament. And it it is literally translated in Hebrew in only two words. Murder not. That's it. Murder not. It deals with murder, not killing in general. Now, depending on your translation, the King James Version, for, for example, it may read, you shall not kill. But it is more accurately to be translated as murder. The deliberate, unjustified taking of an innocent life. Now, when considering the Bible as a whole, this commandment has nothing to do with the killing of animals. Although that could be terrible. It has nothing to do with the killing of animals. And it's not connected to the taking of human life during times of military conflict. This commandment does not forbid law enforcement officers from using deadly force when it's necessary to protect the innocent. It does not pertain to taking life in self-defense. And it has nothing to do with capital punishment. In fact... Long before the Ten Commandments were ever given, God had already established capital punishment for murder. And He gave us a reason why. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, God said to Noah and his sons, Whoever sheds man's blood... By man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. After getting off the ark, following the flood, starting completely over with humanity, God tells Noah that the penalty for murder is death. And he reminds Noah just how precious human life is to him. Because we are created in God's image. Because every person is made in the likeness of God. To take the life of a person by murder is to actually show disrespect to God who made mankind in his likeness. So the sixth commandment is about murder. The deliberate and unjustified taking of an innocent human life. Obviously that would include homicide and manslaughter. It would include abortion. And by definition, it would also seem to include suicide. Which is essentially murder of one's self. If you recall, I said last week, as we were looking at the fifth commandment, to honor our father and mother, 
For some people who have been raised by cruel or abusive or neglectful parents, that commandment may seem almost impossible to obey. Almost impossible. But when it comes to this sixth commandment, to not murder, this might seem the easiest, the easiest to obey. The sixth commandment seems to be the only commandment upon which everybody seems to agree on. Nobody in their right mind thinks that murder is a good idea. And most people think they have absolutely no problem in keeping this one. We might think this is a freebie commandment. It's just a freebie. Freebie from God. Because it really does not apply to any of us. I know what you're thinking. Because that's what I'm thinking. I've never killed anyone. I'm not a murderer. And by that we mean we've never bludgeoned someone to death with a metal pipe. We've never stabbed somebody in the heart with a a knife. We haven't literally and physically murdered anyone. So we think this commandment really does not apply to any of us. Deep down inside, whether you say it or not, that is what we tend to think. But if you have been in your Bible for any length of time and considered the teachings of Jesus, you have probably come to understand that things may not be as simple as they first appear. And there are deeper spiritual realities below the surface. And this is no exception. So let's move from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Where Jesus, who is the truth, he's the source of truth, shines a bright light on the true meaning of this sixth commandment. So if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. This is a portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus is preaching to a large crowd. And within the crowd, there were many people who believed 
that as long as they went through the motions, as long as they were religious on the outside, they were righteous and following God in obedience. But they were absolutely wrong, as they will soon find out. In Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 21, Matthew 5, verse 21, Jesus says to the crowd, listen to this, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go to the fiery hell. Jesus tells the crowd, he knows their understanding of the Old Testament. As it was given to God by the people at Mount Sinai. And, at, and as it has been passed down by rabbis through their oral traditions. Jesus knows what they have heard. He knows what they have been taught. And he knows he is speaking to people who believe that as long as they didn't physically commit murder, there was no way this commandment could apply to them. But Jesus drops this bombshell on them and explains they only had a partial understanding of this seemingly simple commandment. It goes farther than just the physical, outward act of murder. It deals with the inward matters of the heart. God is concerned about what is happening on the inside. In essence, Jesus tells the crowd that when it comes to this commandment, Instead of only being focused on the fruits of murder, that being the physical act, the end result where someone is killed, they should also be focused on the roots of murder, the beginning of murder, that being anger. Now, before we go any further, I do need to explain the anger that Jesus is talking about. Because there are instances 
where we should be angry. Even Jesus got angry. For example, we should be angry about the ungodliness in our country. We should be angry about the mistreatment of people. We should be angry about sin. That's a, that's a righteous anger. That's what they call it. They call it a righteous anger. It's a God-centered anger. But that's not the anger that Jesus is talking about here. Okay? In our passage, the word for anger comes from the Greek word, or gidzo. And it refers, it refers to a smoldering, a smoldering ill will towards another person. A smoldering ill will. It's, it's self-centered. Someone got in your way. Somebody got what you wanted. Someone interfered in your life. Somebody caused something to happen to you that you didn't want to happen to you. And in response, you got angry. But you let this anger Simmer. You let this anger simmer. You nurse it. You let it settle in your heart. And this anger turns into resentment and hatred. This is the kind of anger that Jesus is talking about. It's a, it's a selfish anger that you just won't let die. It's a selfish anger you won't let die. Just as it was with Cain. The roots of murder are anger. And in case you may have missed it, I want to point out that Jesus did not say that anger leads to murder. He raises the bar. And he explains that as far as God is concerned... Anger is murder. And let me explain what Jesus meant by that. When God judges the sixth commandment, He is looking at murder from the beginning to the end. From the attitude to the action. Murder begins with anger 
And hatred becomes an extension of that anger. Which the Apostle John also says is murder. He says hatred is murder. Which ends with an outward act that results in the loss of life. These are all elements of murder. And all of it, all of it, from attitude to action, is condemned as murder by God. From attitude to action. It's all condemned as murder by God. One man has anger in his heart. And it ends with the loss of life. Another man has the same roots of anger. But he expresses it differently through verbal abuse towards someone. Outwardly to us... There is a huge difference in the action. But to God who judges the heart, they are both condemned the same. For their hearts are the same. So if you have this this selfish, smoldering anger in your heart towards a brother or sister, Jesus says you are guilty. Guilty of what? Murder. That's the context here. So all of us, at one time or another, likely more times than we can count, have murdered someone. We are all murderers at heart. And based on what I experienced with many of you during the 2020 political season, some of you are serial killers and mass murderers. You just don't know it. That's the truth. (laughs) Some of you are serial killers. Am I right? Just like the people that Jesus was preaching to on the mount, you and I tend to only focus on the outward act. Whereas Jesus is looking at the intent of our hearts. And in that train of thought, Jesus shares with us a couple of ways to murder someone without even Shedding a drop of blood. The last portion of verse 22. Jesus said, listen to this. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says... You fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. What Jesus is describing here 
is murder that starts with the heart and comes out of the mouth instead of resulting in the the physical loss of life. Jesus begins by saying that those who say to a brother or sister, you good for nothing, or in some translations you might find the Aramic word raka, is answerable to judgment by the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court. The Sanhedrin was the court who dealt with the most serious matters, and they could render a death sentence. Raka is a hateful insult that would be similar to calling someone an idiot or a moron. It's an attack on someone's self-worth and dignity. The same is true for you fool. It's a despising word. And it's an attack on a person's character. It's character assassination. That's what it is. It's character assassinations. And those who use it, Jesus says, are in danger of hell. Why is simply saying, you good for nothing, or you fool, a sin that makes someone guilty enough to even go to hell? I think for that answer, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, where God tells Noah that people are made in the image of God. And let me explain what I mean by this. If you physically murder someone, okay? If you physically murder someone, You are, in effect, declaring from your heart and your actions that the life of that person you murdered is worth much less to you than they are to God, who created them in His own image. Likewise, when you call someone a fool, an idiot, a moron, you are, in essence, declaring the same thing in your heart. You are declaring from your heart and with your mouth, they are worth much less to you than they are to God. Who made them in his own image. The outward act is surely different. Can't argue that. But it's an assassination nonetheless in God's eyes. It's murder with your mouth.
I want to bring this to a close. And there are a couple things I want to I want to leave with you this morning. And the first is this. There is no place for self-righteousness here. None whatsoever. In God's eyes, every one of us are equal at the foot of the cross. Every one of us are murderers at heart. We have all violated the sixth commandment. We are all guilty of the very thing that we thought would never apply to us. We all need forgiveness for a murderous heart. There is no room for self-righteousness here. Yes, I can be I can be angry for example about abortion. Right? Absolutely. But Jesus would tell me I have to love the person. I need to love that person. That's what he would say. There is no room for self-righteousness here. Secondly, someone once said, with only one letter, one letter, anger becomes danger. One letter. A newspaper reported a tragic incident of violence that took place in South in South America. A peasant killed his best friend while they were arguing about political differences. When asked why he did it, he replied with these chilling words. We began peaceably. And when we argued, I became angry. I killed him when I ran out of words. I killed him when I ran out of words. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27, what Paul says, be angry, it's going to happen, be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. It's interesting to note that this passage just so happens to be sandwiched in chapter 4 
between verses that focus on the words that come out of our mouth. It's so easy to say the wrong thing and to use our tongue as a deadly weapon when we are angry. We're going to get angry. I think that's a given. But we need to be extra careful how we act. Don't become a murderer. Don't let the anger settle in your heart. Don't let it simmer where it leads to resentment and hatred. Don't let your selfish anger keep you from reconciling with those who may have hurt you. For that is the devil's work. Don't let anger turn to danger. And lastly, and most importantly, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. It's only by his finished work that we can be declared not guilty in the eyes of God. By God's mercy and grace, Jesus paid the penalty in full for the murder in our hearts. Jesus took all of your sin, all of it, and in return, he only asks for one thing. You. You. He wants you. Because he loves you. You are that precious to him. Leonardo da Vinci once had a, a terrible falling out with a fellow artist just before he began his work on the Last Supper painting. You familiar with that painting? The Last Supper? Okay. The story is told that he determined to paint the likeness of his enemy as Judas. Okay. That's cold. Absolutely. It was a perfect likeness. But last of all, he set to work on painting the likeness of Jesus. No matter how he tried, nothing seemed to please him. Finally, he realized that he could not paint the portrait of Jesus as long as his enemy had been painted into Judas's place. Once that was corrected, then the face of Jesus came easily. Neither can we 
paint the face of Jesus in our own lives. As long as we allow selfish anger to smolder and to simmer and to settle in our hearts. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for for these words. They are hard words. They are humbling words. They are convicting words. But they are words that are needed. I thank you for them, Lord. I thank you for them. Father, I pray that you would help us to live our lives in such a way that they they honor and glorify you. Father, that you'd help us to be forgiving of others just as you have forgiven us. Father, help us to be gracious to others as you have been gracious to us. Help us to be merciful to others as you have been merciful to us. Help us to be patient with others as you have been patient with us. You're so good. Father, if if there's been anger that we've allowed to settle in our hearts, Father, I pray that you'd reveal it. Expose it, Lord God. If forgiveness is needed for someone, Father, help us to forgive them. Help us to tame our tongue, to control our anger through your Spirit, Heavenly Father. And Father, help us again to live a life that brings honor and glory to you. I thank you, Father, for who you are and what you are doing in our lives. You are a good, good Father. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was thinking this morning about anger. Trisha will Trisha will be more than happy to tell you that years ago I had an anger problem. I had an anger problem. Took me a little little while to get past that. You know, some of you might have anger problems as well. Pastor, I just can't control my anger. I can't control my anger. Really? Really? You can't control your anger. So you can you can scream and yell at your spouse. You can scream and yell at your kids. Verbal <laughs> verbal daggers. Verbal daggers are flying out of your mouth, right? We've all been there. I know I'm preaching to the choir here. We've all been there, right? It's just, it just spewing anger, right? 
And then the pastor calls you. Hey, this is uh, Pastor Bob. How you doing? Oh, hi, Pastor Bob. So nice to talk to you. Good to hear your voice. How are things going? Oh, thanks are just fine. Things are fine. Still loving Jesus. Hope to be there on Sunday. Thank you for calling. Did you just not control some anger? It's funny, but that's true. You just did it. That's what that looks like. Absolutely. And sure, there are all types of helps out there. Maybe maybe you do have an anger management issue, and and there are all types of things out there to help us through these these difficult emotions. Now let me go to the other end. Maybe you're a person who says, Bob... You don't understand what I did. I've really murdered someone. I've taken someone's life. I've done a terrible thing. How can God ever forgive me of that? What I did is just too terrible. God can. And God does. We're told in the word of God. If we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Which sins? All of them. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes, there are consequences for things we do. Right? You might carry that with you for a while, whatever that was. But God can absolutely forgive you. And for us, there is no room for self-righteousness. No room. Maybe you're here this morning. I hope hope this message has spoken to your heart. Maybe you'd like to pray with me. Maybe you want to just talk to God in your seat. However God leads you, that's totally fine. Maybe you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He wants to forgive you of all your sin. You know the scary part about this? is that for those who do not know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, they carry all this sin. They carry it all. That's a terrible thought. That's a terrible thought. 
Maybe you're looking for a church to join. Nothing fancy here. We'd love to have you. However the Lord leads you, I just pray that you would respond to him in obedience. That's all I ask. That's what all this is about. Just respond to your Lord in obedience, whatever that might look like. We serve a good, good God. He's madly in love with us. Please be seated. This is the, uh, the first, first Sunday of the month, and I'd like to invite uh, our servers to come on up. We're going to partake of uh, the Lord's Supper this morning. I was thinking this morning, uh, I don't, anybody been watching the Olympics? I, I, I enjoy watching the, uh, the Olympics, and uh, I've been watching it on Channel 8, which is the, uh, the NBC, NBC channel. I think they're the, uh, the main channel that's covering the Olympics. When you watch, when you watch Channel 8 in the morning, you, you are told who, who won the various races and the various competitions, right? You're told that, you're told that in the morning, but you're not, you don't get, you don't get to watch it until in the evening, right? Trish and I were watching the, was it Sun Lee? She was the gymnast who, who won the all, the all around uh, in gymnastics. We already knew she won the gold medal. That morning, we learned she won the gold medal. So now we're watching this competition for the first time. And she has a few little, little missteps and a few little bobbles, right? And Trisha points those out. But in my mind, we're going like, wait a minute. Who cares? She won the gold medal. I know that up front. Right? That applies to so much what we, I mean, think about that. In, in life, as a believer in life, we have our missteps and our sin and, and, uh, you know, we, we just sometimes we do, we're falling off the balance beam and we're tripping over ourselves and, I mean, we're just all over the place, right? But we know how it ends. We get the gold medal in the end. I'm just telling you. We get the gold medal. That's where our hope is. We already know how it ends. We've already been given a preview. I, I, I just love that. And, and what we do here is a reminder of that. We get the gold medal because of what Jesus did on our behalf. It's just, just wild to think about. This, that's what this does. Communion reminds us. Christ did all the work. We get the benefits. Jesus is having his last supper with his, with his disciples. We'll call it the, the closing ceremony. He tells them, I'm the lamb that God has sent 
to take away the sin of the world. Your sin. I'm, I'm the Passover lamb. I'm the true lamb of God. The true lamb of God. And he takes bread. And he says, this is, this is a reminder. This is a reminder of my broken body that I gave for you. And he says, when you eat, remember this. May we eat. And then Jesus took the cup. And he says, this this cup represents the new covenant. Not the old covenant. The new covenant. Whereby we are declared righteous by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Not guilty. Not guilty by the blood he shed on our behalf. This is the new covenant. And Jesus drank. And may we do likewise. I'd like to close in prayer for actually a couple things this morning. Uh, for our offering, we have offering baskets in the back. I want to pray for our our fellowship afterwards, and I want to pray also for uh, our brother Bill. Bill has uh, something going on with the with the kidney, right? Kidney. And he's having some testing done. A little concerned. He's he's uh, he's in pain. So we want to, we want to pray for for him as well. I know I know we got COVID things uh, going on, um, but if you feel so led to to walk up to Bill and to put a hand on him, um, I don't think he would mind. Uh, so let let us let us let us pray. Heavenly Father, I, I, again, I thank you so much for your love, for your grace, for your mercy. I thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you, Lord God. You're so good to us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you, Lord God, for the hope that you give us. We're just passing through this world. We have an inheritance. We have a home that's waiting for us. I can't wait, Lord God. Father, I pray for Brother Bill this morning. Father, you know exactly what ails him. 
Father, I am praying for complete healing. That you would touch his kidney. That you would remove this, this cyst. Lord, I pray that you give doctors wisdom and the insight and the discernment to properly care and treat for Bill. Treat Bill. I know you use doctors, Father, as your instruments. So, Lord God, I just pray that you would just uh, you comfort his family. Give him, Lord God, the peace that passes understanding. Lord God, we're just, we're just expecting great things. We're expecting a miracle from this. Thank you, Lord. I pray for our offering this morning. Father, I, I pray that you would help us as, as a church to use uh, your money, and it is your money, it is not ours, to use your money wisely. Give us discernment, Lord God, as to how to properly administer the funds within this church. Father, bless, bless the, the giver and bless the gift. And Father, for our, Father, for our fellowship uh, afterwards, Lord God, I pray that it would be a sweet time together. Thank you, Lord, for those who have come, for those who prepared food. Uh, Father, bless them. Bless the food to the nourishment of our bodies. Again, Father, may you be honored and glorified in all that is said and done. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.